So you have a vaccine appointment, is that correct? Yes, I do. You do. When and when and where? Uh, March 30th at the Javits Center. Oh, my God. That's not Uh, Comic-Con, is it? Uh, no, well, I'm the, hoping more it's the fancy food show. <laughs> the car so, show. You know, I, I, I could combine the two. That would be great. But uh, I picked that location. I had a feeling when I made the appointment weeks ago that uh, there'd be more of a possibility of there being a bigger crowd, more vaccine, more right. availability. Right. So, um, how, how? Get on. I, I had to pick a location and then pick a date. So I had to make that calculation right at the beginning of the process. How um, how much of a hassle was it? Um, it, it? It was a hassle. I sort of had to finagle the whole thing because the first, very first thing they ask you when you, you log in is you have to identify yourself and give your birth date. Mm-hmm. And uh, the problem with me is, is that my birthday, my, my eligibility isn't until March 20th. And this oh. was in January. So technically, when I made the appointment, I wasn't of age. Right. So, you know, what do you do? So it, they kicked me out. And then just to get into the system, I put in 1955 instead of 1956 oh, you for the cheated. birthday. Yeah. I got in the system. And then later, I made sure to pick a date after my birthday at the Javits when I knew I'd be legal. And right. that, that's what I did. And they asked again, and I put in my real information, and they let me continue. So, oh, that's so you you lied to get into the system, but not about you will be the, the correct age when you when you y- yes, because I will be ten is. days into into my uh, birthday right. for my birthday when I get the shot. So, be, as far as I could tell, on March thirtieth, I will be legal. Right, you'll so, be you'll be forty five. Now, I did try because Cuomo announced a week or so ago that people with, you know, conditions and whatever. So I, with drug stores that you could try and do it that way. So I figured, well, what the hell, if I can get in six weeks earlier, let me give it a shot. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even get past the the homepage, you know, there I, I put in my real birthday and they just stopped me cold. Right. And so it's been a, you been know, a... even though that shouldn't matter, they didn't even ask what my condition was. What my problem what's, was? What is Didn't the even get what, that far? What's what's the condition? Your condition is well, what's that line from the song? Well, oh, I I, I checked in to see what condition <laughs> my condition was <laughs> right, in. Right, yes. The great Kenny Rogers yeah. says, yeah. um, "No people, you know, like apparently asthma, things like that, mm-hmm. um, restless diabetes. leg syndrome, restless leg." Well, I told you apparently Jersey has some weird uh, standards. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend was telling me that a younger guy, like in the, like forty-ish, got the shot already because he's a smoker. Yes, I think weight. Uh, your weight is another one I've heard. Yeah, confession. R- r- right. Um, yeah. So, you know. Yeah. But then again, when I was on the uh, Walgreens site the other day, uh, they weren't exactly looking at me and checking out to see my svelte proportions. So how would they even know? But you know, Jersey has different standards. I yeah. guess. And it was much easier to do. Um, I realized that I haven't. We, I, I just don't follow sports anymore, really. Um, except oh, for, yeah. except for so- we're going to talk about the f- soccer, football later. But uh, um, so update me on. Okay, the Knicks are in the playoffs as of right now. Is that correct? 
I, I think they, they, they are, although I haven't, I don't think I've watched a minute of a Nick game. They're, so they're only, I think, believe they're only a game under 500. Tom Thibodeau is their coach now, which I just forgot. Yeah, they're, 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 their defensive stats are much better. Right. Because of Thibodeau. They, they actually are playing D. Okay. So, so we could, and, in fact, getting some nice performances. When I looked at the, from, uh, like, at the standings, if the season were to end right now, it would be a Knicks Nets first round series. Yeah, that would be spicy. That's correct. Yeah, Uh, how about St. John's? That would be interesting. How are St. John's? Well, they are on. They are on right now. Tonight was an interesting night. I had a Ranger game and St. John's going on uh, almost simultaneously. St. John's is up eight against Xavier in the uh, early in the second half. Are they any good? And they've been playing very well lately. They're they've been a fun team to watch. Um, I know you watched them a little bit a few weeks ago when they played your uh, UConn boys. A very little bit. I have no idea if you UConn. I think it's decent this year. Yeah, no, they 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 actually are. They, I, I I liked what I saw when, in that game. So St. John's is decent. They they play very good D. Uh, they have some very interesting players. It's it's one of the more interesting teams they've had in in a bunch of years. Yeah. So they, they've been fun to watch. So between St. John's. I've been watching Rangers hockey, and that's that's ugly, yeah. So far, and mm-hmm. and actually this week has been good because you know I'm such a tennis guy, and well, that Australia was what I was going to ask you, Serena Williams. I mean, she's in the semis, right? Again, yes, against Osaka. So yes. she'll probably lose. She probably lose that match, right? Probably Osaka. Really Osaka is really good, and she seems to rise at these big tournaments. She but, she plays at her best. You know when when Serena Williams she's start, in great shape. When yeah. when Serena, Serena Williams look at her. Yeah, no, I know that's what I was about to say. When Serena Williams sort of came in, in my memory of women's tennis at the time, if you were twenty five years old, you were like, you're done pretty much. You know, it was it was a really young sure. woman's game. And how old is she now? Absolutely. Late thirties? Is she in her 30, 30, 39. 39. And I had a baby. Yeah. I mean, she's. The kid's now like three years old. Unbelievable! Yeah, yeah. kids, at, kids at every match. I mean, it seems. I, I, it seems like motherhood's been very good for her. It seems to have had a very nice, soothing quality. Mm. Yeah, and and she's, she's much more relaxed. She's in better shape than I've seen her in years. Um, and uh, you know, I I have a feeling Osaka will beat her in the semis, mm. but um, you know, she needs one more to tie the record for 24 grand slams by a woman. And I think she will get it. I think she'll get a tie. And actually the interesting thing is apparently she's getting a lot of uh, pep talks from Billie Jean King and Martina. And well, because they wanted to break the record of, uh, because of Margaret court, because right. of all the controversy with her of over her views anti-gay. on uh, anti gay. And yeah. so they're, they're really pressing her to, you know, to do this. Yeah, good. And, and and keep at it. Yeah, Margaret Court was. Did you like that movie, uh, the the Billie Jean King movie, the one about the the Bobby Riggs? I, it, it it wasn't great. I mean, I I watched it because I was really into it, but yeah. you know, it, it it was watchable. I I thought, right. you know, yeah. they, uh, Emma Stone. I thought did a nice job. Yeah, and Margaret um, Court. But I, I really like the emergence. You know, talk about the Virginia Slims tour. Yeah. And how it came about. That was really good. The yeah. way they handled that. You love the Virginia Slims tour. I did. Um, yeah. I did. 
Uh, we should talk. I want to talk about Stanley Tucci's show too, but we'll we'll get that to that another time. You ready to get to one twenty over eighty? I'm ready when you are, sir. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. What condition my condition was in? I woke up this morning with the sundown shining in. I found my mind. In a brown paper bag But then I tripped on a cloud And fell eight miles high I tore my mind On a jagged sky I just dropped in To see what condition My condition was in Yeah, yeah Oh yeah What condition my condition was in all right, so it's been a while, so I'll just give the the spiel here at the beginning. 120 over 80 is now, by the way, two shows, not one, I've decided. Um, every time I do an episode with you, I'm going to do an, a, a Bryson episode as well. So, okay. uh, for instance, we're going to talk So why about, don't we make it a trio? When do well, I get to do an episode with Bryson? Oh, you don't want to. He's, he's a handful. You got to, yeah, his people, he's tough to handle. Today we did could one be like today. Like a, Mar- a Martin and Lewis kind of a thing, you we, know. Maybe we we could work this out. We did one today um, about superheroes. He was eating an apple Ooh. the entire time. Um, <laughs> he doesn't ever talk into the microphone. I mean, because he's four years old, he'll be four years old in next week. And wow. uh, okay. and but he, he's great. But uh, yeah, you got you kind of got you really have to be in the room with him too. That's the thing. Like you know, it, it can't oh, yeah, be I'm sure that would thing. help. Yeah. So, now was it a Marvel DC conversation? Superheroes? Is uh, that what you were having? We him? were doing mostly Marvel because we had visual aids that were Marvel related that got him talking about it. So we did mostly Avengers stuff. Um, oh. But See, I could have been in on that. Yeah. Uh, you know me. I yeah. love that. Yeah. Okay. He so he did. Yeah. So anyway, so every time we do one of these, I'll do one of those. So you get a little. You get sort okay. of both ends of the spectrum. You get the the erudite. You know the 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 the, the in depth knowledge of of yourself, and you get a four year old talking about whatever excites them that day. Um, okay. So that's what I'm. So so one twenty over eight is now sort of a. a two-pronged thing it's it's bryson talks about whatever he talks about and then i do these um ones with you um the idea is just we like to talk about things we're still in this pandemic it's gonna we're gonna get about four feet of snow in the next two days or i am at least um and it just feels good to talk to chat about things we are into that make us happy or with people that that make us happy like yourself or bryson so we want to get our our um, blood pressure to 120 over 80, which is seen as the sort of optimal spot to be at. Today, we're doing a little bit of sports and a little bit of film. First, we're going to talk about the 2014 uh, championship playoff final. That's English uh, soccer, also known as football, between uh, Darby County and uh, my favorite my favorite team, Queens Park Rangers. That game was played on May 24th, 2014 at Wembley Stadium. And Doug has chosen a film, The Americanization of Emily, starring James Garner, Julie Andrews, and James Coburn uh, from 1964. So we'll be doing, those are the two that we'll be doing today.
Um, and I know, Doug, you have lots of um, relegation and promotion questions to ask me. Yes, I'm not. Yeah. Uh, I'm not. This is going to be football 101. Right. And we, Absolutely. We, I'm going to be up front with everybody. We we had hoped to have a guest. We were experimenting with some um, new technology, and it didn't didn't happen. We we might have to pick a time to tape these that is like sort of not in the middle of when everybody's home watching streaming Netflix. Um, you could tell everybody it's it's it seems to be my uh, the technical problems mm, seem to be at they're my on end. Doug's end. That's okay. Or alternately, you could just stick your head out out the door of your apartment and just scream down the hallway, "Hey, you know, everybody, <laughs> get off the internet for an hour." Stop watching that Three Stooges marathon on Cinemax. Right. Yes. I'm uh, busy here. Come exactly. on. Exactly. But all we did it once in the afternoon. It worked quite well, and then now it's not working. So. Um, we, we do, we're not going to have the guest. We had somebody who was actually at the game, but we'll have to wait. Uh, we'll have to do that another time. Anyway, so when we come back, we'll talk about the 2014 championship playoff final. Just starting to believe a little bit. Well, Hoylet's got the better of Buxton. Puts it into an area. Keo Zamora! Unbelievable! From the very brink of elimination... Bobby Zamora has surely scored another playoff winner. Okay, so maybe we should start with your... Why don't we start with you, Doug, here? Because um, right. I know you have a lot of questions. You're you're an American who is not, not a big soccer fan. Um, I, mean, I've watched, I mean, I've watched English football for years, casually, you yeah. know. Uh, even before NBC started covering it, I remember... Back in the uh, in the late '90s, I forget maybe it was ESPN where I was watching, but I remember there seemed to be a lot of Manchester United games on TV all the time. Of course, yeah. and I remember watching them and actually marveling because I had this knee-jerk kind of American attitude that you know the rest of the world's problem is if they were just exposed to American sports that they would find our sports more interesting because soccer is just. Uh, you know, there are not enough scoring opportunities. It's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, that's the too many games end at, you know, nil, nil. And, but then I remember watching in the late nineties and apparently this was a glorious time for man, you, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it dawned on me, like these guys are so good. They actually can score at will. Like whenever they needed a goal, it seems like they, you know, well, I, I really yeah. began to appreciate offensive soccer that, you know, that what you can do. And it it really is. And then I remember starting watching more World Cup mm-hmm. every four years, and you know, marveling yeah. at you know what I was seeing. So I, I'm definitely more uh, appreciative mm. of great football. It's just that I get confused by like watching this game. Right. I figured out what the stakes were. Mm-hmm. But you know, with you know the whole thing about um, relegation and promotion. Now, apparently, we know the top tier in English football is the Premier League. This match we were watching at a sold-out Wembley Stadium. You know, the, the, the absolute you know pandemonium going on in the stands. This was a big sporting event at Wembley, and this was really a playoff 
the, the second tier of English football, the winner of this game moves into the top tier, mm-hmm. correct? Correct. Okay. Yeah. So, I think one of the things that makes, for me, that makes um, not just English football, but Europe soccer, we'll call it soccer because we're, we're two Americans talking. Soccer generally. Okay. I, so- I was willing to go yeah. your route, you know. Uh, soccer generally really interesting is this idea of a relegation and promotion because it essentially means that uh, unlike in Major League Baseball or the NFL, uh, NHL, NBA, whatever, which are clo- what they would call a closed league, right? You own a franchise in the league yep. and you're in the league. It doesn't have bad, no matter how bad you stink. I mean, the, the Knicks would have been relegated 10 times over by now, but they're not because mm-hmm. they own a, you know, that that's just not how the system works. Consequently, for, for a large number of teams, once the season reaches a certain point and they're not in reach of a playoff spot, it's there's really not that many reasons to watch. Whereas in English uh, soccer or any European, pretty much any soccer league except MLS, which is a, a closed system, you have mm-hmm. this double, this other jeopardy of being relegated. So not only are the games at the top of the standings important, but the games at the bottom of the standings are important as well. So it just makes, for me, it makes for overall a more interesting competition because there's more games that matter, right? And we're talking, obviously, there's a huge financial incentive here. I mean, we're talking millions and millions and millions of pounds. Right to, so the, to get into the top Premier League. The game we're talking about is the championship playoff final. So every year, the worst three teams, the bottom three teams in the Premier League, that's spots 18, 19, and 20, there's 20 teams in the Premier League, are relegated to what's called the championship, which is the second tier below the Premier League, which means there are three spots for teams from the championship at the top of the championship to move up. Two of those spots are automatic. If you finish in the first two places in the championship, you're automatically promoted to the Premier League. The third spot is determined by a playoff. So the four teams below those top two, so oh. three, four, five, and six, do a playoff. So uh, three plays six. Oh, so that's why that's why the stakes were so it, it, yes. it was either Derby or Queens Park in this. Right, oh, right. just so, got it. Three Thank plays you. six and home and away, so two games. They each get a game at their their stadium, and uh, four plays five, same deal. And whoever comes out of that goes to this final at Wembley, which is a one winner takes all one game, um, one game to decide who gets that last spot to the promote to be promoted to the Premier League. So in two thousand fourteen, uh, I wrote it down here somewhere. Uh, it was at the time it was said to be worth, this is a large spread, but somewhere between 80 and 120 million pounds. If you're in the premier league, I mean, you just get a cut of the TV money. It's a massive amount of money. Um, it's gone up since then, but it's known as the richest game in football. Um, QPR, uh, which is the team I support had finished a DFL in the premier league the previous season. So they had come down from the premier league the year before they finished 20th. That's last on 25 points. So there are 14 points away from safety. So the, the, the spot that would have kept them safe was 14 points away. So they sucked pretty bad. Yeah. Um, that season they had fired Mark, a guy named Mark Hughes and uh, hired another well-known coach named Harry Redknapp, who took over sort of midway through that season. They got relegated, but they kept him around. 
and uh, he led them into the championship the next year. Uh, they finished fourth, so that's t- two spots away from the um, from the automatic, so not automatically promoted. They played a team called Wigan Athletic in the semifinal. They beat them and played Derby County, who had finished third in the standing, so one spot ahead of QPR uh, in this final game. Uh, QPR were led by a guy named Charlie Austin, who has actually this season returned to Queen's Park Rangers. He went to the Premier League for he played with in with QPR in the Premier League, and then they uh, he went when they got relegated again. He stayed in the Premier League with another team, um, but now he's come back in his older age to try to save them from being relegated even further. Um, he scored 19 goals that year. Uh, they also had a bunch of seasoned pros, guys like uh, the QPR fans will know, like Clint Hill and Richard Dunn. Their second leading scorer was an, another sort of veteran player named Bobby Zamora, who figures uh, uh, prominently in this story. Um, what was your impression uh, as a sort of soccer, slightly Luddite soccer fan? What What was your impression of the game without giving away what happens in the end? So for the um, most of the it, game, what was happening? It seemed for I thought a lot of the first half, Darby was carrying the play. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought most you know, most of the first half. Although I, I remember being struck, there was a moment I think around the twenty minute mark where um, a Queens Park guy made a I thought a beautiful save in his own end ball was going out of bounds off of them. He kind of did a scissors kick, made it to a teammate. They kept possession. And all of a sudden I, that seemed to change the offensive momentum. I don't know mm-hmm. if you remember that play. And all of a sudden they started carrying the play a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, but then I thought even in the second half, Darby was, had more of the chances, yes, yes. They had, you know, far more, you know, decent, uh, shots at goal. They mm-hmm. had more corner kicks. Mm-hmm. They, 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 I mean, they, they seem clearly carrying the play. Yes. For mo- and, 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 and then there was a problem, which I guess you right. will get into and made it even harder for Queens park. So yeah, um, this basic story is that Darby were on top the entire game. Uh, they had 16 shots on goal, five on target to QPRs, 11 shots on goal and only one on target. Um, and they had 14 corner kicks to just one for Queens Park Rangers. Um, also, a couple of things happened in the game that made it harder for QPR. They were uh, they had a midfielder named Nico Cranchar who had to come off in the first half. Normally, you would not take a player off in the first half unless they were really stinking up the joint or if they're injured. Yeah, he, that was a very early substitution. Yeah, he came right? off and he was replaced yeah. by a guy named Armand Traore. And the second thing that happened was that in the 60th minute, um, Darby, a Darby player was through on goal, basically. He would have been one-on-one with a goalie, and a guy named Gary O'Neill um, made the sort of, what I would say is the tactical decision to take him down at any cost outside the penalty box. And so he got a Which, which was, was key, because yes. unlike in hockey, if you did that, that would have been a penalty shot. If he had just been a few feet more into the box, it would have been. been. It would have been. But it was just outside the box. So O'Neill got a red card, so he was sent off. So now QPR was already uh, second best in the game or down to 10 men. 
They, now, by the way, on that move, I thought that was a legitimate call. Did you have a problem oh, with no, it? Oh, no, no, no. I think everybody understands that, that he, he, did, he yeah. knew it exactly yeah, no, what he I was doing. No, I thought so. He, yeah. had to, he had to do it to yeah. save the – to keep it tied. Um, so now they're even one player down. Their goalkeeper uh, is a guy named Rob Green who had a um, made a bunch of great saves to keep them in it. Oh, he was – he was he was spectacular. American yeah. soccer fans will remember Rob Green. He was the England goalkeeper in the first game of the 2010 World Cup, the one that was in South Africa. Uh, England played okay. the United States in the first game, and they drew 1-1 only because um, Rob Green, who was in goal. Oh, I remember that game. That was he, that was him? Okay. Yeah, he let Thanks. this ball Thanks. through that okay. never should have gotten through, and... Um, and so, yeah. if you follow American soccer, you'll you'll know him for that. So okay. anyway, as you said, uh, Darby in complete control. So they had a man advantage game. for at least thirty minutes. Thirty minutes of a man I, advantage, right. but they just can't get it into the back of the net. Ninetieth minute, there's a throw in on the sort of camera side of the field, uh, like the side that the camera is on. Uh, a QPR throw in they get it in and there's like sort of a little tussle and the ball squirts free and the Derby player is going to get it and a player uh, who I never had a ton of time for but but will always be loved for this uh, named Junior Hoylett a Canadian international a winger he he slid into a, a tackle and knocked the ball away towards the end line uh, so basically the goal line, but, you know, not but yeah. to the right of the goal. Then he beat and he his, kept it in bounds, beat his man, it. kept it in bounds, crossed it right into the box where a guy, a, the captain of Derby County, a guy named Richard Keogh, um, tried to clear it. But it was sort of awkward the way he had to kind of turn his body and, and try to flick it. And instead of clearing it, he pushed it right into the path of Bobby Zamora, who curled in the winner. And the place just went. And I, this is where I wish I wish uh, we were supposed to talk to Dunstan. Yeah, yeah. Um, the he place just went absolutely apeshit. Uh, or did. at least half they the stadium really went apeshit. The other half were yeah. inconsolable. Well, you can see they they cut to those fa- the whole you know tears are, are are streaming because they knew so late in the game, you know, and and they had all the advantage in the world, and this was the crusher. And you, you know you're not coming back from this. So did you know, you know what was going to happen, or you? I didn't tell you. Did you look it up or anything like that? Or this game, by the way? No, is, I, I, I thought we would discuss it. It's yeah. available in its entirety on YouTube. It's about two yeah. hours, two and a half hours, something like that. But what did you think of the end of the game? I mean, how exciting was that? Oh, by no, I mean I figured out the stakes. I I figured out what you know it was to get to the next level. And I knew how important that was both financially and psychologically. And, you know, basically you're, you're making the NFL by winning this game. So you, you knew what it meant. And, um, you know, knowing that, you know, it's Wembley. I know the importance of that. Mm-hmm. It's a full house. And, you know, it was like watching a, a Super Bowl, a world series. It was, you know, a March madness game. It was, you know, you saw the passion and devotion of these fans, and what what the stakes were. Yeah, and you know it. That's 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 what I think. Maybe Americans tend to miss about great football. 
is yeah, that soccer. You, We're calling you, it soccer. You, 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 soccer. <clears throat> yeah. you see what it means to and 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 you know you can appreciate that as we, well as anything. We were talking earlier about comparing it to something in America. Um, it's really tough. Yeah. I, I've always thought the best comparison is college sports, actually, specifically college basketball. I mean, college football is a different animal because it's basically a closed league system. I mean, it, there's like 10 or 15 teams that are allowed to win the championship and everybody else is just fodder for them. Um, mm-hmm. But college basketball, because there's so many, I don't know how many teams there are playing college basketball, not th- Division One, 300 and something probably. Probably yeah. something like that. Yeah. Um, you get this wide, uh, this wide um, sampling of teams. So it's like you know you've got on the one side you've got Duke, North Carolina, Michigan State, uh, Florida, you know, whatever, Kentucky teams Kentucky, like that, and, uh, and then bloods, yes. they are competing. They are in a competition, technically, with. Uh, you know, uh, Ryder in New Jersey or St. Francis or, uh, uh, you know, Coastal Carolina or uh, Austin P. you know, all of these. Or Vermont. Or Vermont. So you get these situations where, um, where a team like Vermont, right, and we've talked about that we did an episode on the Vermont upset of Syracuse. Yeah, and that... Yeah, great example of what a you're te- talking a about. A team like Vermont, a s- tiny little school with a gym that seats 7,000 people, you know, not much of a basketball history from a small state with no recruiting base can can get on the same court with Syracuse, one of the great pro uh, as much as it pains me to say it, one of the great ba- college basketball programs in the country. And uh and and play them and that's sort of how English because of the openness of it because there's promotion relegation because you have things like cup competitions where anybody could really play anybody you know you get Manchester United playing away games at you know Torquay United or something where there's like it's like a three-sided stadium with you know 6,000 seats or something um and so that's, I think, the best comparison is college basketball because there's right. there's this sort of egalitarianism almost. Like, you know, anybody, everybody has a shot. It's not equal. I mean, there's no, you know, St. Francis of New York is not going to win the national championship. But technically, no. they can win their league, go to the NCAA tournament, and be on the same court with Duke. And, right. and if they can beat it. them... And they, then when it happens, yeah. we get all crazed about it we go oh my god that's why we love march madness because Mm -hmm. you know precisely because of that so you know you see that now Mm -hmm. i'm interested in um your fandom queen's park where did that come from how did you uh, come to them i picked them out of a book so when i was working at espn i started espn in 1998 and i found um that I started to get kind of tired of the sports that I had to work on every day. You know, like I didn't want to, I was producing a radio show. I didn't want to like book guests and, or, you know, produce a radio show and, and talk about the NFL and the NBA and all this stuff every day, baseball, and then come home and 
try to be a fan of that same thing. It just changed my sort of orientation to it. I just wasn't as interested in spending my free time. I still was into it, but I wasn't as interested in spending my free time. And I, I wanted to find oh. a sport that I could just be a fan of, right? That nobody would ever no, it's ask understandable. Like, I think a know. lot of people who work in sports have a similar reaction. Yeah. You know, so, you don't want to bring the office home with you. Right. Yeah. So I somehow just started you know this was sort of the beginning of the internet that's how long ago it was you know and you could i could do a little bit of research and um i went to borders before borders without a business and they had a, a you know the rough guides the, the travel guides that company that makes travel guides yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah they had a book called rough guide the rough guide to english football and um and it was just big book and it had like anywhere between three and five pages on every team in the top four divisions of English football at the time. So the Premier League, the Championship, League, what's now called League One, which is like the third tier, and League Two, which is the fourth tier. And it had a little bit about their history and pictures and stuff. So I said, okay, I'm going to, I'll read this book and, and I'll pick a team. And you know me well enough to know that I'm a contrarian when it comes to these things. Like, there's no way in hell that I'm going to become a Manchester United fan or a Chelsea fan or an Arsenal fan. Liverpool. Liverpool. What are the kind of teams that are always in the top four to six and win championships and cups and stuff? Because I honestly, my thinking was if because I'm not from there and I have no claim to any like cultural attachment to it the only way i can truly become a fan is to suffer with that team right to pick a team and then suffer with sure. them and right and i so i need a team that's i can't pick a team that's going to win all the time because that's not real fan that's not you know it's not going to make me authentic well, i, I mean, wanted to be an authentic I mean, you're, you're, fan. you're not a front runner i mean we know yeah. guys like that and yeah. that's not a that's not an appealing part of a personality Right, but there's an like there's that. an authenticity sure. to following a losing team that you even see, yeah. you even see in fans of of very successful teams like Yankee. You're a Yankee fan, but a lot of Yankee fans yes. will tell you they're they are a great pain to tell you about. You know, in the 1960s or whenever the whatever the Yankees well, were. Well, that's for when them. I. That's exactly what happened with me. <laughs> right. In fact, that was one of the things my father admired about me and my brother. Is that yes? We started very little when the Yankees were still great, but then you know we went through the so-called Horace Clark years, and you know I would be, you know, as a kid in front of the TV on an August day, two thousand people at the stadium. You know the Yankees are in eighth place, and we'd ask my father, "Can we go to the game?" You know, he he admired that about us, that he thought we had character by yeah. sticking with the team when times weren't good and yeah. you know there were a bunch of years like that so you know obviously the last 40 years has been far more ups than downs but yeah you you, you know it look you're you're a cubs fan you know exactly what we're talking yeah. about here right so yeah and there's you know, like i said there's an authenticity that everybody tries to draw on that's related to suffering to to supporting yeah. your team when they aren't any good Everybody understands this, even even fans of very, very successful teams like the Yankees or Manchester United or Liverpool or something. Liverpool fans. Sure they do. Liverpool fans, 
I mean, that's one thing that annoys me about Liverpool is that, that especially their American fans, they think they're some kind of, you know, underdog story, you know, that like they've, uh-huh. they've chosen an underdog team because they chose Liverpool who they hadn't won in a long time, the premier league, but I mean, they never, they're never going to get relegated. They never finish out of the they top are, They six. are soccer royalty yeah. and they can't hide that fact. Right. Yes. So, so, um, but they do have the cool song. They do have Rodgers and Hammerstein. You'll never uh, yes. walk alone. Yeah. Yeah. So, which I find, you know, that that that's fine. I find that whole thing staggering. I remember there was a YouTube clip I, I actually showed. I actually showed it to my mother a few years ago because she didn't. I mentioned this and she didn't believe it. And I showed her a, a completely sold out full stadium at the top of their lungs singing Rodgers and Hammerstein. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and every word was enunciated. It was it was an amazing clip. Yeah. You know, which brings me to a, this thing. It's one of my ambitions in life. I was thinking, watching the uh, the Derby Queens Park game. I want to be the guy. I want to go over Park there Ranger. and get a job. You have to call them. Queens I want to write Rangers. Queens Park Ranger. Yeah. I want to be the guy who writes the songs. Who who comes up with the the parodies or whatever. I think that would be a very cool job. I want to come up with that stuff. We don't have a lot of great songs right now, but uh, another great one is uh, there's a team in Edinburgh called Hibernian, and they sing a song called Sunshine on Laith. Laith is a a neighborhood uh, or a body of water, I think, or uh, there's a river in Edinburgh, I think. It's a Proclaimer song. You remember the Proclaimers? I would walk 500 miles. Oh, sure. Miles yeah, yeah. Uh, 500 a, miles. Yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. They sing a song called Sunshine on Lathe, and, and at Hibernian Games, they sing. There's good videos on YouTube where you can just. I'd love to see it. That's cool. I would, love, I would love to go to a, a European game just for that alone, to yeah. be in that atmosphere. Oh, that that, that must be great. I can't wait to go back. Now, my other question I have to you okay, Queens Park Ranger fans. Mm-hmm. When they're not in the top tier, when mm-hmm. they're not in the Premier League, do they then have to develop a, a secondary rooting interest if so, you want to follow the Premier League? Or is it complete devotion to Queen's Park Rangers and you just sort of watch games, but you don't alter your loyalty? Or do you no, come you, up with a secondary team? You, you can have a secondary like team, I think, yeah. There's a primary loyalty to certain teams, but... He might like Man City more than Man U, or you maybe you think Arsenal's okay, or your Tottenham, or something like that. But um, yeah, so do you think even most I have English teams. fans ha- have that? They have, I think so. Secondary. Some of them okay. even have teams. Dunstan, who is going to be on with us tonight, he he's a huge Rangers fan, but he he also supports Sutton United, which is the town from like. A much smaller they're from like three or four divisions below qpr oh, um uh-huh. in the that from the town that he grew up in uh so oh, well, it okay. goes both that, ways that makes sense yeah it goes both ways now the other thing i find fascinating now correct me is queen's park rangers are they a london-based team west london shepherd's bush yes west london this is the thing i find fascinating i think i'm we once talked about this is that you know, you talk about New York, uh, American sports in New York. Let's go. The golden age of baseball. Everyone talks about, you know, the 40s and 50s in New York, when every year a New York City team basically won the World Series. And you had the Yankees, who were in the Bronx, mm-hmm. the New York Giants, who were on Upper Harlem, right near Yankee Stadium. 
at the Polo Grounds, and you had the Brooklyn Dodgers and Flatbush in Brooklyn. And yet, just in the Premier League alone, I mean, how many London-based teams are, they're so neighborhood-centric. It would be like now, take Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. and you put like 12 baseball teams, and you'd have like a Coney Island team. You'd have a Midwood team, an East New York team. You know, it's that parochial. I find that fascinating that so many teams in London, and and it's almost like a three or four block radius, maybe, well, there's where your devoted fans are. How, I, I'm just how looking it up. Here. There's there's currently uh, one, two, three, four, five, six Premier League teams from London: Arsenal, Chelsea, Crystal Palace, Fulham, Tottenham, and West Ham. There's three in uh, the Championship: Brentford. They're actually from Middlesex, but anyway, Millwall and Queens Park Rangers. Uh, in League One, there's two more: AFC Wimbledon, uh, Wimbledon, um, and uh, Charlton Athletic. Uh, in League Two, there's another one: Leighton Orient. Uh, there's five in I the mean, National League. So, so you're right, right there. You've got it. Uh, must be, it must be amazing. I mean, is it is it really a family thing? Is that the main probably. driver of your rooting interest, or family it's or the stadium down the block, area you're from? Yeah, if you're from West London, you you know you've got a a lot of choices like Chelsea. Uh, but could you imagine Fulham. a major sports league in in no. in America like New York, where you had that that many teams who really inspire that kind of devotion? Yeah, in, in I one don't. city. That's why you it's can't you can't compare it to the minor leagues, right? It's like it's these no, are, all of these not. teams all so. the way down are are followed passionately by their fans, and it's not you know just a fun day out i mean it is a fun day out but yeah so um any other questions i can answer for you about uh no no i i i think you you've hit the high note um i oh the only only other thing i i noticed when you know you you were here in the city is that you know this soccer culture that exists just in new york city you know the various bars on, on a weekend where you go to meet your peers and compadres because there's there right there is a yeah. Queens Park Ranger bar well, there's the no that you used to go to well we don't we don't have our own bar but we go we have a, a QPR NYC is a group of fans that get together we're in constant contact digitally as well and we go to um, Legends which is right across from the Empire State Building and a lot of clubs teams go there fan groups go there so you're sort of mixed all together. Well, were they, were, what was the one in the village with Nevada Smith? That was yeah, the that famous one. The, yeah. it was that, like, but, but I remember going there a couple of times yeah. on a Saturday morning, and it was unbelievable. You know, there'd be 42 TVs, and, uh, you know, there'd be little sections. That, I mean, the, the devotion of the expatriate fan mm-hmm. was, was amazing, yeah. you know? Um, so that's the 2014 uh, championship playoff final. QPR went up to the Premier League, were immediately relegated the next season uh, and have finished, let's see, in the last bunch of years, 12th, 18th, 16th, 19th, and 13th in the championship. Huh? So that's what it's like to follow Queen's Park <laughs> Rangers. Anyway, uh, when we come back, we'll talk about uh, a really fun, great film, The Americanization of Emily. This is Jim. 
Jim Rockford. At the tone, leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. You are full of bullshit, my friend. I will sue you for everything you have. I will sue your ass. All right, Doug, so this is your choice for the week. Uh, 1954 is the Americanization of Emily, starring uh, the uh, James Garner. 64. 64. 64. Yeah, sorry, 64. Yeah. James Garner, Julie Andrews, and James Coburn, among others. Uh, tell me about what, why did you want to talk about this? This has always been one of my favorite movies, and one of the reasons is it, it seems to be a, a very kind of a more of an obscure pleasure not too many people know know this movie mm-hmm. it, it, it it's very well regarded but i think if you mention it to most movie fans they kind of look at you blankly like oh james garner julianne which is yeah. like wouldn't around sound of music where they have no idea what you're talking about and it's maybe one of the most interesting world war ii movies ever mm-hmm. and it was primarily because it happened to be a screenplay by the great patty chayefsky mm-hmm. who was a very distinct voice in both television and films of the 50s and 60s into the 70s and this is about chayefsky at his best and it it really it's not a war movie in the sense there there are very few battle scenes it's more kind of the differences you know interestingly enough uh we were talking about english soccer so much the talking about um the differences between the english and the americans right. in in wartime england during uh, you know 44 and 45 and um this is a movie set you know, leading up to D-Day and Chayefsky and the director are talking uh, in, in unusual ways about World War II movies. In a way, to me, this anticipates kind of what went on, happened in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what I was going to say. Uh, <clears throat> the, the idea that all of a sudden we're questioning, and James Garner's character in particular, uh, is questions... The war, the valor of war, the nature of war, and it sort of anticipated, you know, for the first time in Vietnam, the questioning of what the hell are we doing? Why are we going over there? I mean, it, it, it anticipated in 1964, I think, what was going to happen in our society for the rest of the decade. Well, to quickly give an idea of what the movie's about, uh, Garner plays uh, Lieutenant Commander Charlie Madison, who's what's known as a dog robber, which is basically he's like a fixer for a high-ranking military officer. So the he gets him, you know, in a wartime when it's difficult to get things, uh, you know, nice things. He makes sure that he gets the nice hotel room, that he gets uh, champagne or, you know, uh, thick steaks. Basically, Chayefsky writes in the prologue to to make sure that that your general or admiral is well-fed, well-loved, 
and right. you know basically you get them whatever whatever they need right. and naturally you know uh Charlie Madison James Garner is sensational at this he's yes. serving his admiral <clears throat> the chief aide who's played by the wonderful Melvin Douglas mm-hmm. who uh was just coming off an Oscar the year before for the movie HUD um mm-hmm. so and then this this uh promotes the real tension between Garner and Julie Andrews, who plays a, an English woman who right. is driving for the Americans. Right. And she is horrified at what she witnesses, all this, the luxuries and the right. foods that no Englishman, English person has gotten in years. And the Americans are just swimming in right. eggs and butter and milk and <clears throat> fruit and everything and she's she's appalled by this right she's quintessentially english james garner is quintessentially american but with a twist mm-hmm. and and that is the really the story and the tension of right. the movie so garner is is a dog robber for rear admiral william jessup played by melvin douglas as doug said um and uh you know one of the things he does is he gets girls to show up at the admiral's parties or, you know, pinochle games or whatever. And, um, he tries to get Andrews, who's a driver for him at one point to, to be, uh, to come to one of these parties. And she's just, she's first of all, lost, seems like she's lost most of her family in the war. And she's living the life of an English person during the war, which means a lot of deprivation. And she's appalled to see that, there's all this luxury available to uh, to American generals. Anyway, Douglas, as she as she puts it, you Yanks are really enjoying this war, aren't you? Right. Yeah. Douglas um, has recently, uh, sorry, Jessup, played by Douglas, has recently lost his wife, and so and is acting somewhat erratic, and he's got kind of these crazy cockamamie ideas he's come up with, and one of them is that. Uh, this is just before D-Day, that the first um, soldier to die on the beaches of Normandy should be a sailor. Um, there's this right because he talks about they they go into the the intra service rivalry. Right. He wants to make sure that in the Europe is, that's in, yes. the army is in control. He's really desperately trying to carve out right. the navy's role in Europe. Right, and the, or, the you know. and the plan gets sort of stranger and stranger, and they're building. Finally, they're building a memorial to it, and then he decides he like really has a break, like from reality. Like he's curled up on the floor, and he he wants yeah. to send Garner, who is d- though he's a very brash American, is anti-war. He's not interested in risking his life in any way for any. Proudly proclaims that he's a coward. He's a coward because right. as he in a wonderful monologue. When uh, Garner meets uh, Julie Andrews' mother for tea, and Julie Andrews, he tells this wonderful story about how he actually did serve in combat. The very beginning of the war, he was in Guadalcanal, and and, uh, how horrifying it was. His men were being cut down all around him, and he realized, get me the hell out of here. Yes. And... uh, uh, Julie Andrews' mother was one of my favorite characters. She's played by Joyce Grenfell. Um, very famous English actress. Yes, yeah. who I've seen in other things. I'm looking through her list now to see what I remember her from, but um, she was really good. And anyway, in the end, uh, you know, the, he's 
Garner is sent on this mission to to ba- they basically decide that they want to send him to D Day to film uh, the going the, fir- the land D-Day. the first assault the troops the the, the the guys who are going to uh, right. the first land at Omaha Beach right. and you know strip the mines you know basically you know a very 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 dangerous mission and he's sent there with a film crew and to James get Coburn. It on film. His friend, best friend, is James Coburn, uh, who's uh, Commander Paul Bus Cummings, and he's he's quite gung ho about it. He wants to go and like sort of prove his mettle because all these guys are like, yeah. you know, they some of them. I guess they went to Annapolis or whatever, but they're they're like, oh yeah, Coburn is a, is a, an Annapolis yeah, but man. They're, they're and, totally yeah. out of the line of fire. You know, they're not really. No, risky. these are big shots. Yeah, yeah no. and so he wants to kind of yeah. prove his mettle and. So he's very enthusiastic about this. Garner is not. Garner thinks that he's going to not have to do this, but in the end he does. He, and then I I won't say the end of the movie. There's a little surprise at the end, but um, I, what it reminded me of was Aaron Sorkin. It's very speechy. Yes. There's a lot of, a lot of speeches. Sorkin took a lot of lessons from Chayefsky. No question about it. Sorkin is not my favorite, but I, I, uh, I I liked this. I liked the writing. Didn't find it as sort of pretentious and overbearing as I find Aaron Sorkin to be most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I there, think Chayefsky has a lighter touch. Yeah. yeah um, but there are a lot of like scenes that are just people making speeches. Yeah, Garner does a couple. Well, of as a matter of fact, that monologue I talked about at, at when they were having tea, I used to use I, I sort of pieced it together when I in my acting days I used that as one of my monologues oh, for auditions yeah um, I don't think I ever did it nearly as well as James Garner but I loved doing it and you know I thought context was a little difficult you know when you're reading for a part and you get a very bored person sitting there you know in their eighth hour and all of a sudden I'm doing this kind of weird World War II monologue. But um, <laughs> I just love doing that piece. But um, the thing of it is, I think the performances in this movie, um, I mean, Garner is one of my all-time favorites. This is about the best he ever was. I think he himself thought this was his best movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he plays just the, the charming rascal beautifully yeah you know the, the there's echoes of this in his whole career and this is probably the best example of it and julie andrews to me i mean this was just the beginning of her great movie career this was her second movie mm-hmm. she had just finished doing mary poppins but it hadn't been released yet mm. when she was hired to do this and this is right before the sound of music and she's delightful I mean, yeah, she was really good. She doesn't sing in this movie at all, and yet she's beautiful, charming, intelligent. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's 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 a hell of an actress. I I thought she's great in this. Yeah, and you really see why she became such a big star, because you know, my God. Yeah, she's, she's beautiful. She's, why wouldn't you? She's know? very yeah, very nice to listen to and look at. Um, are there any other actors in this that we should keep an eye out for that maybe I missed uh, little bit part players or anybody that you thought was particularly good? Well, yeah, well, there were, I mean, uh, the, the, the guy who 
James Coburn has a few scenes with William Wyndham, was a very famous TV actor of the era, mm-hmm. who um, remember the guy um, Harry, the one he, he they 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 start arguing about you know you were only a Annapolis a four striper I was a midship you know that yeah. guy he, he's another admiral's aide he was the lead in a TV series at that time the farmer's daughter, uh, which was a very popular show. And he also did a very famous uh, Star Trek episode, which a lot of Star Trek fans really loved him in that, um, where he, he plays a uh, commander of a crew who is overwhelmed and he's the only survivor and he really flips out beautifully. And he and Shatner together were sensational. So William Wyndham, um, uh, Ed, Ed Bins, who plays another admiral who worked a lot with Sidney Lumet. It's just a real, and, and Coburn. Coburn is, is, is great in it. And actually, I had read that originally mm-hmm. um, James Garner's part, he was supposed to be the James Coburn part. And William Holden was going to be the lead. And he backed out of it. Mm. And so they promoted Garner. And Coburn came in, but you know William Holden would have been really good in it too. It would have been different, but uh, you know, Cob- uh, Garner in the Coburn part, you know, a nice what if, yep. you know. And Mel- and Melvin Douglas was just this great. You know, Melvin Douglas. I don't know if you're aware, he uh, famously was the, the lead with Garbo in the Nachka, which is one of the great Ernst Lubitsch movies of all time. Which He's one? fantastic in a great uh, Ninotchka from like 1939. Uh, one of, a lot of people consider it Garbo's best movie, where the tagline or all the, uh, the marketing was, Garbo laughs, you know, <laughs> it, it was a great comedy. Yeah. And he was great with uh, Cary Grant and Myrna Loy and Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House, which is a wonderful movie. And Melvin Douglas is great in it. And he's also famous for being the real-life husband of Helen Gahagan Douglas, who would have been an actress and then went into politics. And she's the woman who famously ran against Richard. She was the incumbent senator in California who Richard Nixon ran against in 1950 in a very vicious campaign. And Nixon famously called her the pink lady. (laughs) <laughs> and that was Melvin Douglas's wife. Wow. Okay. Well, you went really. And uh, the way, and there's more. I read in in one of the Robert Moses LBJ books that Helen Gahagan Douglas was the long, a longtime mistress of LBJ in the fifties. Wow. In Washington. Lots of threads. Poor Melvin Douglas. Lots of threads. Imagine LBJ. That. He's got to worry about LBJ. You know, <laughs> in on his wife. Amazing. Um. So it's, it's a, a great, it's a great cast. I just think it's a, and it's a wonderful. I mean, again, it's ahead of its time for a, a, a 1964 World War II movie to not be rah rah, you know, the right. good war. I mean, this movie makes you think about exactly what a few years later we were all thinking about Vietnam. Right. It's yeah. It's. I enjoyed it a lot. I had actually watched it before, but I made the mistake of um, this is something that happens to me often in my dotage. I I, I can't start. I, you're a late. You're a night owl. I cannot start watching anything after like eight thirty, yeah. or I'm not going to make it through. 
Um, so I watched this during the day. I had some free time during the day, and I watched it the other day. And it's it's a, just a delightful, fun movie um, from a really nice period. Uh, I, I enjoyed yeah. it a lot. So. And I and both Garner and I think Julie Andrews pointed out that this was about the, their favorite movie they would both done. Hmm. Okay. Julie that Andrews loved this too. Yeah. So, um, it's time to go, but I have, would you be willing to go back and talk a little more QPR? Because I think I can get somebody on the line who was, was at the game that day. Would you be interested? I would love to talk to him. Absolutely. All right. Doug, you know what the best part of being a QPR fan is? I wish you would tell me. It's not all the winning we do. It's not the shiny stadium with uh, all the luxury boxes and the amenities. It's not the huge signings. It's it's the friends, Doug. It's uh, QPR NYC. Uh, is we mentioned this earlier. Is uh, Queens Park Rangers New York City is a fan club um, based in New York of a sort of mixed bag of uh, uh, British expats, uh, Americans who who I guess just have lost their minds and are supporting this team and uh, an Australian, uh, some I- an Irishman, a lot of different people. One of those people uh, who I've talked to before in a pod, a different podcast is Dunstan Bentley, uh, who was actually at the game we're talking about today, the 2014 championship playoff final. So he's going to give us, he's going to paint a picture for us of what it was like I, to be I, there. I'm so happy to hear that, because I, I envy you, Dunstan. <laughs> I really do. It looked like it was an amazing day. Dunstan, um, so you were there. Who were you, I was there. Who were you with? So I was... Um, so my, over the years, we've accumulated through... Uh, sorry, being either at the pub or being sat in the same area as... Hmm. Um, a ragtag bunch of about 10 of us... Um, we all assembled in um, Shepherd's Bush. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got breakfast and then we all hopped in taxis to Wembley. We, we all congregated in a hotel bar where we enjoyed a carvery and about <laughs> six pints before the game. And it was within walking distance of the ground. A warm up. And it was incredible. It was, um, you know, obviously um, sort of you avoided the crush of, of the, the normal bar and, and into uh, Wembley on a match day, it's impossible to get a like a beer yeah. anywhere near the ground without sort of a crush. So we kind of planned it in advance, and also the roast dinner right. really did help to soak up the alcohol. Absolutely, which was a very good thing. <laughs> <laughs> so a carvery for people that don't know is like is this, it's like a Sunday roast, like a potatoes roast beef, uh, other veg, uh, very sort of. Well, it's meat and potatoes, right? So it's like the kind of thing you would like sitting in your stomach, soaking up all that alcohol. Andy, you've forgotten something very important. What did I miss? The, the gravy. The gravy, of course, yes. <laughs> Always <laughs> the gravy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, and where were you sitting for the actual game? So the tickets we got, we, so we all weren't necessarily together. We were sort of, some of us were on... We were all within about three rows, rows of each other in the same block, which was actually fortuitous. Mm-hmm. But we were in the kind of the lower bowl at the top of that lower bowl, just to the right-hand side of one of the goals. 
Okay. That becomes important in a little while. Right. So were were the fans kind of segregated? Were were you all Queens Park rooters in your area, or were yes. you kind of mixed together? No. Oh God, no. You absolutely were. No, that doesn't help. Okay. It was half and half, and actually, after the game, there's an amazing photo that somebody took on the halfway line with, like, a fisheye lens where you could literally see half of the stadium still full and half of the stadium empty. Right. It's so stunning because, obviously, at the end of the game, the team that that loses doesn't want to stick around and watch the other team lift, lift the trophy. Yeah. Whereas the team that have won don't want to leave for at least, you know, <laughs> however many hours. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, there, we're there for the weekend. Right. So, you're, Actually, you're still, you're still there, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, it's about seven years. <laughs> you're actually still there. I, I am. It, it, it's a bit cold. Um, the reception's pretty poor, <laughs> and, uh, you know, they are still trying to get me out. So what was the, um, prior to the big finale, which we've already talked about, um, so I won't make you go over it completely, but... I mean, even Doug, who's not a, um, a as astute a, a football, we're calling it soccer because we're Americans, uh, two Americans talking okay. about it. But um, I've, I've been I've been here long enough now yeah. to understand that soccer is possible. So, right. So um, even he, what he watched the whole game, which you can watch on YouTube in its entirety, and he recognized that for the vast majority of the game, Darby was on top. And we were backpedaling, especially after Gary O'Neill is sent off uh, early in the the second half. So what was the sort of, um, I mean, Queens Park Rangers fans, not unlike most soccer fans, uh, are not, you know, they sort of revel in, in um, in their doubts about their team. What was the sort of mood around the 89th, 88th, 89th minute? Well, do you know what? I'm going to take you back a little, a little way. So it was kind of, to, to give you in a nutshell, obviously anticipation, goalless first half. Second half, you're thinking, right, we're, we're, we're kicking towards the home fans. We're, you know, we're in with a shot, even though Derby are on top. You know, we've got some strength on the bench. Mm-hmm. Then obviously Gary O'Neill gets sent off. Then, like, the... And I, I think I spent the 60th minute to the 89th minute with my head in my hands. Mm-hmm. The other problem was, where, like, the design of Wembley means that at our end, if it's a sunny day, you literally have the sun beating down on you mm. in a very unforgiving fashion. So not only was it miserable in terms of, like, you know, you're literally, you know, the ball's at the other end of the pitch, Watching your, def- I mean, Richard Dunn and Rob Green were just insane, the pair of them. Yeah. And you're just waiting for the inevitable. Right. I've lost a stone in sweat. I'm miserable. I've all I all I've ever wanted to see. Like, so I missed the. I, I was too young for the FA Cup finals. We don't talk about the League Cup final because that didn't happen in '86. <laughs> right. Um, but this was the first time I'd ever seen Rangers at Wembley. And all I'd ever wanted was A, to see us play at Wembley, but B, to experience a goal. And I was like, it's not going to happen. It's slipping away. We're going to lose. It, you know, it's probably going to be an extra time. Uh, you know, obviously in the 88th minute, I'm thinking, you know, all right, well, let's... And in fact, quite a few people in the state, in the, in the Rangers end, also had the, it's going to go to extra time. Because quite a few vanished to go to the bathroom before the crush. 
So, yeah, so cut to the 89th minute and, you know, kind of we were higher up the pitch than we'd been all game. At this point, we'd not even had a shot on target. So mm-hmm. it was a pretty tense, miserable... And as you, as you said, it was a very, very Queen's Park Rangers kind of day. It was, you know, you're expecting the worst and frequently the worst actually happens. But, you know, and, and, and this is why when I said where we were sitting, where this comes into play now, as Hoylet's put the ball over, it's bobbled off of Keogh. And I am literally in line with kind of, I'm, you know, I, I can see the shot going in. Before yeah. it hit the back of the net, and I'm off my feet. Right. I've, I've, you know, <laughs> our area's kind of almost been the first to recognise what's happening, right. and then it was just mayhem, utter, okay. utter mayhem. I am hugging people I've never met. I mean, you know, if you think about it now. We're in the middle of a pandemic, and yeah. there's sweaty strangers hugging each other we've never <laughs> met. You know, people are uh, kind of falling over. It sounds each other. so good. Down rows. It was, it was, yeah, it was, uh, it was one of those like pre-pandemic unique experiences you get at football, and then what? Then something magical happens, which is everyone's just on such a high, the crashing realization that we've got another three minutes of injury time to play, <laughs> right? Meant it was the longest three minutes of anyone's life. Yeah, it was horrific. Yeah, and. Oh, there's, and unbeknownst to me, one of the guys we were with actually filmed the aftermath of the goal, the celebration, mm-hmm. and then the, then the injury time just before the final whistle. One of the guys that I was with, all you could hear is this screech of him shouting, clear it, clear it, <laughs> clear it. And it's such a guttural noise. I can't even recognize it as human. Yeah, it's that sort of like you know involuntary. You know, you're just willing the ball not to hit the back of the net, and like the whistle goes, but it's not the final whistle. We all thought it was the final whistle. It turns out it was a free kick, and eventually, about thirty seconds later, the whistle goes, and the relief and the release and just the celebration happened. And it was, it was, it was one of those days where I can't remember half of what happened, but I'll never forget it. Right. If you know what I mean. Yeah, what? How long did you stay in the in the stadium afterwards? You figure, I probably about a good hour, hour and a bit, and then we actually had tickets to go back to that hotel. Um, so we had somewhere to go and have a drink, which was nice, mm-hmm. and it was high fives and hugs and just singing Bobby Zamora for the rest of the evening until we uh, got the wrong train back to, to sort of uh, Shepherd Bush and. <laughs> had to change a few times, and by the time we got back, all the pubs were shut, apart from one. So we managed to find, like, but weirdly, all the pubs on the Uxbridge Road, which is the main drag, um, they, I think the police had shut them all down, but we managed to find one in, in a side street not too far away. Um, and we just, it, it was, it, we kind of caught the end of the Madrid derby in the Champions League final, and we are all just sitting there chatting, saying, what a robbery. We cannot believe we got away with that. There's not a single one of us that doesn't think that Derby deserved to win. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not you, one of us. Did you run into any Derby fans, or were they long gone by the time you? Oh, they'd long gone, and they were bitter as well. Like yeah, still are. They still hilarious. are. Oh god, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah, and and you know what? I don't blame them because I think I would be too. Oh, of course you and, would. And 
I think the horrible thing, guys, is that, you know, that was their best chance of getting promotion to the Premier League, which they still have yet to do. Yeah. And they've got progressively worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think a lot of Derby fans feel uh, justifiably robbed. Right. Uh, and especially when you throw in the FFP, um, stuff that happened afterwards in that season. Right. Whereas in the case of QPR, it's just been up, up, up since that day. We That summer <laughs> oh, we yeah. signed Rio Ferdinand uh, and, and and a bunch of other players and uh, – and it's really the sky's I, the limit. Rio. I remember Rio Ferdinand. I remember him. Sure. Yeah, he was. They they oh, special. He was. He's QPR. He no, he's not QPR. He, but he we we specialized oh. in signing over the hill names uh, who didn't really well, care it much. It sounds about the club. a lot like uh, the other Rangers uh, that we could talk <laughs> about. The New York Rangers. They're famous for that. Yeah. Actually, I'm sure curious, Dunstan. Your reaction sounds. I mean, the the, the cup. For the New York Rangers in '94, the euphoria for me lasted years. How, right. how many years has this lasted for you? <laughs> I, I, it's still going. I'm still at the stadium, mate. Um, <laughs> I mean, okay. you, you know what? I, I, what I would say, it's quite funny because it's one of those moments where if if you're, you're a bit low and like, especially like saying the pandemic when it first when the pandemic first hit. I actually put the playoff final on and watched it. Yeah, of course. And just kind yeah. of it takes you back. And there was actually a very funny moment um, coming full circle back to what Andy was saying about QPR New York City. We'd all gathered to watch a game where we were away to West Brom in the championship. And it was going horrifically. I think we were, it was one all at half time. About well, 7 1 game. Yeah. 65 minutes in. Yeah, Ooh, it was 4 1. Then, the wow. then the feed went down and we put on the playoff final on YouTube. So everyone knows we're there, and all of a sudden we've gone absolutely crazy when Zamora goals <laughs> goal has gone in. Everyone's looking around at us, going, "You're losing seven-one. What are you doing?" You know. So oh, I thought you might have been like that when Harry met Sally moment. Oh, you will have what they're having. What are they drinking? <laughs> we'll have that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, I, I think it certainly was the uh, the football factory equivalent, but but it, it's one of those moments where it's like. When you support a team like QBR, it's not like when you support Liverpool or Man City. We're never going to win the you know Champions League. We're never going to get to Europe. We are, but you know we're pretty much nailed on for 16th every year. So when you get seasons like that and moments like that, you know. But Mark Bircham, uh one of our former players who was a fan, said, "You don't support QBR for the glory. You support them for the moments." And and that, and that was you, you know as far as moments go there was none better. You just couldn't, you couldn't script that. And, mm-hmm. and the fact that Bobby Zamora is, is a player that got a lot of stick because he was injured. He literally was like, kind of had one hit. Um, yeah. He could barely move after a game, could barely move on the pitch, but he, we had our kind of best run with him. And for him to get the winner to become this cult hero after getting all the stick, that's kind of a very QPR thing. It happened with Paul Furlong. It's happened with other players where they get a load of grief and then all of a sudden something happens and the fans kind of adopt them and kind of actually, you know what, we're sorry. In fact, we actually sang we're sorry to Paul Furlong at a game once. <laughs> um, so, oh, wow. it, it is. It, now, has, it's, um, I have a question. Has Bobby Zamora paid for a drink since that day? Not a Do you know what? He... I don't think I, I'm not even sure he drinks, but if he did, he absolutely wouldn't. Yeah. Um. He is, you know, like he's up there. 
you know, godlike status, complete deity in West London. Yeah, sure. Uh, okay, Doug, you have a real live British person on the phone. Is there anything else you want to ask him about? Uh, I don't know uh, how many no, pounds well, in a stone or... earlier. <laughs> when we were talking about, I, I find fascinating the idea that, it, like, all those London teams across the various leagues and trying to compare it to what it would be like in here in New York City, like, take a Brooklyn, and you put, like, um, you know, you'd almost have a neighborhood team in all those Brooklyn neighborhoods. Like I mentioned, like Coney Island, uh, Flatbush, Midwood, uh, Canarsie. I just find that fascinating that London can support such devotion in, 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 in these various little niches that are there. I, it, it must be fascinating to live through. Well, you know what, Doug? It, it, it's not just that, though. You speak to a lot of fans, and there's also, like, non-league kind of, which I guess would be, what, AAA, or, in fact, AA teams, farms, farm league teams. Mm-hmm. And, well, you know, growing up, I used to Maybe go Sutton United. Uh, before. Yeah, Sutton United. So they're, they're in the, the National League, which is, like, the, the league just directly below the football pyramid. And I would used to play uh, football in the, the recreation ground when I was like eight eight years old. I you know go home, have a shower, uh-huh. get some food, and, and go down and watch the game. Like you know, and just literally, I'd go every Saturday. It was just something to do. And, and a lot of people in London will grow up like that, where it, you know literally most places will have um, a non-league team. So in my area, there was Carshalton, Sutton. Tootin and Mitchum, which actually Paul Curtis, one of the other QB on New York City boys, he's from he's from there, and that's his team. They're, they're all within <laughs> the a, a names very are great small area. Yeah. yeah, for us, for <laughs> us, get. for us, the names are are delightful. You know, I, I know it's yeah. yeah. And, and especially you know, you, you you get up north and you start getting into like. Um, you know, there's what there's one called Dunstan, which is Dunstan Federation Brewery, Atherton Colliery. You know, you're talking about real kind of works teams, and yeah. in fact, QPR even lost in the FA Cup to one called Vauxhall, Vauxhall Motors. Motors yeah. Right. Wow. So you know, it and, and that's that's the beauty of the English soccer system is that like things like the FA Cup, you can get massive turnovers and massive shocks, and you know, football is is as random as it ever was. You know. Mm-hmm. I'm glad we got you on, Dan. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great hearing your description of it. it. Sounds like, you know, just a remarkable day. And I'm so glad you have it in your memory. Oh, my God. I, you know, we've got the photos. In fact, you know, strangely, like one of the guys that would, that used to come to QPR with us has actually emigrated to Brazil. So he, he couldn't get back. So I had a shirt made up with his name on his back. And I made a whole load of um, paper masks with his face on it. So... <laughs> So we so we could make sure that Keith Jones Jonesy could get into Wembley, and we had all our photos with him in the stadium. And, <laughs> you know, it was like no no man left behind. That's oh, great. I just realised I do have a question for okay. Dunstan. Yes, yeah. at the, especially at the end of the game, the celebration and the fans were going crazy after the goal. I noticed that most of the fans, the the, the jerseys they were wearing, seemed to be everyone was wearing those blue and white ones. No That's, one yeah, seemed to be wearing what they were wearing that day. Like, nobody. Sure. Right. They were within okay. their home so, kit. Yeah. Or away. Yeah. They were oh, within so their the away strip. Blue and white is the home. Oh, okay. Yeah, so blue and white is the home. And, and 
um, in the playoffs, in the finals, you kind of toss a coin to see who is the home team and the away team. So QPR lost the toss and Derby wore their home kit. We wore our away kit that season, which traditionally back through the years, like it's always been like red and black hoops is one of our most common. We've not had that in a while. Mm-hmm. That's why we were wearing red and black hoops. But we are known throughout you know, the UK for having blue and white hoops. And in, in the 70s, right. like that, that kit was kind of really striking because no, not many other teams had the blue and white hoops. So we're kind of very synonymous with it. Hmm. No, because I, I don't think I saw one fan wearing, Black you know, what I was watching that day. It was fascinating. Yeah. yeah. You know? yeah. Well, also the, the club actually paid for and left a, hot, like, a load of blue and white flags on everyone's uh, seat. Uh, so hmm. that would have added to the blue and white thing as well, hmm. where people would have, would, you know, obviously, I mean, I, I, I know me and, me and my lot, everyone was wearing blue and white hoops that day because that's, you know, yeah, that, that's your home. That's your home care. That's what you're known for. And even though we did wear red and black, it, it kind of, I, I think the, the odd one or two would have done. But I think, you know, Rangers are, are a team that's very proud of its colours. And that's why blue and white was warm. OK, gotcha. Thanks. Thanks, Don. No no worries. All right. uh, guys, real Thank you so much. You. Yeah, we'll talk to you later. All right. Thanks, man. Will do. Uh, what should we do next time? I've uh, Let me go. I'll go first, okay? Um, sure. I'm going to do, I just rewatched a, a film that's the kind of movie for me that I can watch over and over again. It's the 1997 adaption of the famous Nick Hornby book, Fever Pitch, starring uh, Colin Firth, Ruth Gemmell, and Mark Strong. Not the terrible uh, Drew Barrymore, Jimmy Fallon one, where he's a Red Sox fan, but this is the real, the screenplay is written by Hornby. It's about Arsenal. Uh, it's real, one of my favorite movies. Um, so that's Never my seen choice. it. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Good. Uh, how about you? Um, a little baseball in the air, and I was thinking it's available on YouTube. Uh, Game 7, 1952 World Series, Yankees and Dodgers at Ebbets Field. Uh, there are a ton of Hall of Famers involved in this telecast, and it's a fascinating view of Ebbets Field. I say we give it a sh- we give it a shot. Let's do it. I-, I think I read today that pitchers and catchers are reporting some places today. So yeah, that so works. it's in the air. Let's uh, do it. All right, I'll talk to you next time. Okay, bye-bye. bye bye. Bye.